I am Solis Veritas, and this is the Defending American Exceptionalism podcast. It appears many Americans have forgotten what makes America exceptional. This podcast is here to remind them. The greatest country on earth has been so successful that it may now be suffering from that very success. The lack of any real suffering in recent decades has made it all too easy for people to criticize and malign the greatest country ever to have been established by man, while sitting comfortably in their centrally heated homes, watching big screen TVs, interacting with their fellow men primarily through social media, and experiencing life events via virtual reality video games. This podcast is meant to serve as a reminder and tutorial on the unique and special form of government our founders created, and to explain the real history, purpose, and structure of America. It hopes to offer a counter to the falsities gaining popularity in the past 20 years, probably even longer, that America is no better than any other country, no different and no more honorable. Indeed, the very qualities of our country and her people that make it great are under attack in a way that threatens the very foundation on which it balances. Keyboard warriors, echo chambers, and virtue signaling with no substance are all the means by which individuals hide from any thoughtful discourse with their neighbors and make nearly impossible any honest, intellectual discussion of the issues of the day. If you'd like to engage in those types of discussions, stay tuned. This episode is being recorded on October 11th, 2021, Columbus Day, a day that sadly is no longer really celebrated despite the significance of the Spanish explorer in our own history. Episode 39, Fascism. What is it? What is it not? And who are the real fascists? What is fascism? If you ask many today, particularly those on the political left, a fascist appears to be anyone who disagrees with that person's opinion. And all too often, many of us on the political right are called fascists. Labeling someone a fascist, you see, immediately indicates some sort of evil motive behind that individual's opinions. But the way that term is used shows a clear lack of understanding of exactly what fascism really is and from where it came. Before we really dive into this issue, I do want to recommend a book, and much of the start of my research began with this book. That book is Liberal Fascism, The Secret History of the American Left, From Mussolini to the Politics of Meaning, by Jonah Goldberg. I used a lot of the same sources the author did, because he so thoroughly researched this issue. And though I do not agree with every conclusion he reaches, I agree with most of them. And I highly recommend the book for a real look at what fascism may look like as it exists here, today, in our country. Any look at the current use of the label fascist demonstrates the fact that often it is used, along with the term Nazi, to lob insults at one's political foes. The use of the terms fascist, Nazi, communist, and even socialist are an incredibly lazy way for people to pick a term that has clear negative connotations and to launch it like a rocket at one's political enemies. There are problems with the use of all of these terms, but the use of the term fascist or fascism truly misrepresents what fascism was and is and where it may actually be infiltrating society today. In fact, the very people so often calling other fa- others fascists are more and more supporting policies in our own country that would align more readily with Mussolini's Italy than with the Democratic Republic and the natural rights sought to be protected by our founders in the country they created. Winston Churchill perhaps explained best the differences among fascism and other less desirable philosophies when he wrote the following in his 1937 essay, The Infernal Twins. 
in that essay, he explained this. Nazism and communism imagine themselves as exact opposites. They are at each other's throats wherever they exist all over the world. They actually breed each other, for the reaction against communism is Nazism. And beneath Nazism or fascism, communism stirs convulsively. Yet they are similar in all essentials. First of all, their simplicity is remarkable. You leave out God and put in the devil. You leave out love and put in hate. And everything thereafter works quite straightforwardly and logically. They are, in fact, as alike as two peas. Tweedledum and Tweedledee are two quite distinctive personalities compared to these two rival religions. I am reminded of the North Pole and South Pole. They are at opposite ends of the earth. But if you woke up at either pole tomorrow morning, you could not tell which one it was. Perhaps there might be more penguins at one or more polar bears at the other, but all around would be ice and snow and the blast of a biting wind. Churchill went on to say, There are, of course, differences between the dictatorships, yet they are largely discounted by one significant fact. It is easy to imagine Mussolini or Hitler as head of a communist state, or Stalin as fascist duce or Führer. Nothing in communism or fascism as we know them, or in the characters and records of these three men, makes such a situation incredible. Yes, despite their differences, these doctrines are similar in one respect, in the way each chokes freedom such that it can hardly breathe, if at all. They are anti-liberty at their core, and they expose some of the ugliness of human nature. And the basis on which the evils of two of them, fascism and Nazism, are claimed to be advents of the right, is based in part on the fact that they both have elements of nationalism, and nationalism is supposedly a right-wing philosophy. Of course, nationalist movements, in this country and others, have been born of both the left and the right. And what is more telling about the key goals of fascism, as with Nazism, is a focus on totalitarian control of the people for the claimed good of the whole. It is here that the concept of fascism seems more in line with the left's current agenda. In other words, nationalism is a big part of fascism, but it is not the domain solely of those on the right, and because of this nationalist element of fascism, fascism in one country can look very different from fascism in another, with the one common theme being totalitarian control as the ultimate goal. And this total grab of power at the top and centralization in one place is in reality the telltale sign of a move towards fascism. No one person more embodies fascism than Benito Mussolini, but it was actually British author and liberal progressive fascist himself, H.G. Wells, who actually coined the term specifically fascist from the Fascisti Party of Italy led by Benito Mussolini. In a speech Wells gave to students at Oxford University in 1932, he had this wish for progressive liberals. Here is what he said. We have seen the Fascisti in Italy and a number of clumsy imitations elsewhere and we have seen the Russian Communist Party coming into existence to reinforce this idea. I am asking for a liberal fascisti, for enlightened, enlightened Nazis, and do not let me leave you in the slightest doubt as to the scope and ambition of what I am putting before you. These new organizations are not merely organizations for the spread of defined opinions. The days of that sort of amateurism are over. They are organizations to replace the dilatory indecisiveness of democracy. The world is sick of parliamentary politics. The fascist party, to the best of its ability, is Italy now. The communist party, to the best of its ability, is Russia. Obviously, the fascists of liberalism must carry out a parallel ambition on still a vaster scale. They must begin as a disciplined sect, but must end as the sustaining organization of a reconstituted mankind. Make no mistake, fascism is about totalitarian control, first of the country in which it is born, and then for all mankind. 
So again, what is fascism? It is not a conservative policy push to restrict abortion or reduce taxes. Oh no, it is a foundation upon which those taking charge seek to take charge of us more fully. And that is where today's left is more openly than ever before exposing its own fascist tendencies. Much of the confusion surrounding the real meaning of fascism is tied to the fact that Benito Mussolini, credited with creating the first fascist government, was an anti-socialist and an anti-communist. So goes the flawed logic, if socialism and communism are advents of the left, fascism must be a right-wing ideal. The problem is that this overly simplistic conclusion ignores why fascism, and similarly Nazism, opposed socialist and communist revolution. It takes just a quick look at Mussolini's rise to power to understand that of all the things he was not, it was a supporter of democracy, federalism, or any of the American traditions that conservatives, those on the right, seek to preserve. Keeping in mind that the very term conservative is one who favors tradition and values and generally opposes change, at least for change's sake. Fascists, however, seek and always did seek complete change, just as they did in Italy. Traveling to Austria for education, returning to Italy to serve as editor of La Loda de Classe, Class War, and associating with a wing of the Socialist Party that was pushing for more radical change in the country, Mussolini was anything but moderate, and his actual beliefs anything but anti-socialist. Though not a supporter of Marxism, and thus not of communism, the reason for his dismissal of Marx's theories was not a distaste for state control, but a belief that Marx was wrong, that a global workers' strike was actually possible. Instead, he viewed Marxism as a way to motivate people to demand change, but then to use that to serve his own purposes, and not actually achieve some workers' utopia. But, understood Mussolini, if he can get the masses to believe in something such that they work unknowingly to further his goals with no actual real hope of reaching them, that is where Marxism, as he also viewed religion, might be useful. One could argue this is quite similar to today's push to claim a climate crisis that demands immediate and radical action. The earth is not ending tomorrow, or even in 20 or 30 or 50 or 100 years, at least not if you look at the actual science. But if you convince the masses that if they fail to take action now, the world will end, all you need is that belief, not reality. Mussolini perhaps stated this concept best when he said, It is faith that moves mountains, not reason. Reason is a tool, but it can never be the motive force of the crowd. This is exactly the current left's mode of operation today, and it was Mussolini's method for gaining power as well. In 1918, Mussolini openly pushed for a dictatorship in his home country, leaving no doubt he should be that dictator, saying Italy needed a man who is ruthless and energetic enough to make a clean sweep. This is where attempts to paint Trump as a fascist occur, without looking at any of the actual actions intended to be taken. The name fascism, as used by Wells, came from Mussolini's fighting bands, in Italian, Fasci di Combattimento, a group that contained members of many different societal philosophies, including many socialists and many Jews, who would only be rounded up when Hitler entered Italy much later. Though Mussolini did eventually put in place a number of shocking anti-Semitic laws, they weren't enforced until much later. But these black shirts, named due to the black shirts they wore at rallies and during raids in Italy, were a brutal group that disrupted government operations. It is in the way Mussolini ultimately seized power in 1922 that many mistakenly attribute his ideas to the right side of the political spectrum, as he was opposing a liberal, in the classic sense, government, 
and essentially took control when the existing and failing Italian government failed to stop a general strike of trade workers. It was Mussolini's fascists who did stop this strike, providing a more legitimate basis on which to claim power should rest with them. By March, with a threatened march on Rome, starting across the nation, the King of Italy, Victor Emmanuel III, sent for Mussolini and prepared to hand over Italy's government to him. Elections that occurred two years later cemented Mussolini's power by seeming to show widespread support for him and his new government. But any belief this election was fairly conducted is pure folly. And in that same year, sounding eerily similar to the push of our own democratically-led states to alter election laws under the guise of public health and safety in the light of COVID, Mussolini, too, enacted a law that made not only his re-election essentially a foregone conclusion, but ensured that his new fascist party would take control of Italy's parliament. Part of Mussolini's rise was luck and timing. No one was happy with Italy's existing government, and the country had been plagued with riots, strikes, a flailing economy, and general chaos since the end of World War I. Did people look to Mussolini to bring about stability? And that he did, but in a way that would wreak havoc on the nation and its people. Mussolini described his new form of government and governing as everything in the state, nothing outside the state, giving rise to the term and concept of totalitarian itself. He outlawed any political parties but his own, eliminated any free press, and engaged in an elaborate propaganda campaign. He created a secret police set on spying on his own people with oppressive and often murderous action taken against any perceived enemy. Mussolini also had an advantage as he rose to power, something that anyone with even a basic understanding of his cruelty and horrendous acts may find hard to believe now. But he was liked. He was charismatic, and press at the time, particularly press in the United States, gushed over him. It was, just as it is today for the progressive wing of the Democrat Party in our nation, the press and the intellectual elite who most often and unapologetically claimed the label of fascist in the early 20th century. Mussolini was reportedly good-looking, and for that reason was a golden boy of Hollywood, a community that cast him in at least one film and generally viewed him as a hero. He was essentially a sex symbol to the world, in some ways even impressing Winston Churchill's wife Clementine. But his allegedly good looks could not cover up the evil of his actions that formed the basis of his reign over Italy. He was a mass murderer and a cruel dictator. That is where human nature leads when one man is given total control. It is also the same road that is traveled where any nation's powers become more centralized in a single unit of government. And it seems that throughout history, where political parties seek to centralize power, condensing it, they all assert the motive is for the common good and the policies pushed by these actors should sound awfully familiar in today's political climate. Consider this. Examples from the 1919 program put together by Mussolini and others involved in this new fascism included a push for the following. Lowered voting age. Minimum wage. Government agencies to be operated by workers' representatives. Think union bosses. Redistribution, either in terms of ownership or use, of private lands. Creation of a rigidly secular school system. A large progressive tax on capital that would amount to a one-time partial expropriation of all riches. Seizure of property owned by religious organizations. And the nationalization of all weapons industries. As Jonah Goldberg described this platform, Ah yes, those anti-elitist, stock market abolishing, child labor ending, public health promoting, wealth confiscating, draft ending, secularist right-wingers. Mussolini is the face of fascism, 
but fascism, or at least parts of it, entered our country more than a century ago. American fascism exists, and it has always come under the banner of progressives. Teddy Roosevelt, Woodrow Wilson, FDR, the first half of the 20th century, that same time period that globally ushered in the rise of Mussolini, saw our nation led by many who held incredibly and frighteningly similar views on policy, the role of government, and its power. True that these American leaders purported to be bound by our Constitution and to support America and her principles, but their actions, and in some cases their own admissions, demonstrate that when a movement refers to itself as progressive, it is not progress that is the aim, but radical change, and radical change away from parliamentary, democratic, and free societies, by definition moves away from those ideals of the rule of law, self-governance, and personal liberty. It is a path to totalitarianism. Woodrow Wilson is perhaps the most obvious example of a leader who had disdain for the structure of the very country he was elected to lead, and his beliefs and feelings about the United States Constitution were well known prior to his rise to power in our country. Much of Woodrow Wilson's philosophy can be found in his very own writings. The State, his incredibly long academic paper that he produced while seeking his Ph.D. for Johns Hopkins University, that writing and others of Wilson in his time prior to elected office pushed for power grabs by the government, and namely by the president. In his essay, Constitutional Government in the United States, written in 1908, he explained this view. The president is at liberty, both in law and in conscience, to be as big a man as he can. His capacity will set the limit, and if Congress be overborne by him, it will be no fault of the makers of the Constitution, but only because the president has the nation behind him and Congress does not. Indeed, to Wilson, the state was the one true power, and he didn't like checks and balances and separate branches of government. Of course, this quote does not do justice to the fact that Wilson regularly and openly criticized the Constitution itself and the concept of natural rights embodied in it. He wrote, No doubt a lot of nonsense has been talked about the inalienable rights of the individual, and a great deal that was mere vague sentiment and pleasing speculation has been put forward as fundamental principle. But Wilson's anti-American opinions do not end there. He routinely spoke or wrote about views that sound anything but conservative and instead telegraphed the true intent of radical change. Rather than seeking to preserve traditions and avoid large-scale change, Wilson was all for it. Here are just some of his other strikingly fascist admissions. As president of Princeton, Wilson explained to the university students that, quote, our problem is not merely to help the students to adjust themselves to world life. It is to make them as unlike their fathers as we can, end quote. He regularly mocked the founders' checks and balances, patriotic celebrations like the 4th of July, and any strict adherence to the constitutional text. Just like Mussolini, Wilson viewed and wrote that the masses were to be used by leaders as tools, tools for change, change that would serve only to bring more power to those very leaders. Wilson's thinking was in line with other progressives of his time and of today. It was not the individual who was to be valued, but the individual only in the light of the collective. Perhaps his most troubling views were toward the individual, on which topic he explained. While we are followers of Jefferson, there is one principle of Jefferson's which no longer can obtain in the practical politics of America. You know that it was Jefferson who said that the best government is that which does as little governing as possible. But that time is past. America is not, and cannot in the future, be a place for unrestricted individual enterprise. 
The only reason today's progressives fail to claim Wilson as one of their true inspirations, since they clearly agree with most of his views of government, was his incredibly racist tendencies. So as a side note, many attempt to paint Wilson's views and actions as more conservative or Republican than Democrat, more right than left due to his blatant racism. But this view on individualism is no beacon for the right. It is the antithesis of America's conservative right. The truth has shown by our nation's own history. It is that it is the very government-controlled programs and activities of the left that serve to continue to keep minorities from experiencing the full American opportunity. It is the policies put in place by these pseudo-fascists, Wilson, Roosevelt, the second Roosevelt. It is not the right wing that hinders any equality, but the left wing that continues to sell the lie that minority groups, the very ones protected by our founders, can only be protected when under the control of the left and its policies. So Wilson's racism, and that of many other leaders, does not determine which side of the political spectrum on which one sits. For if it did, it is more of an indication of the left than the right. Theodore Roosevelt may have been no better than Wilson when it comes to a move more towards totalitarianism, a linchpin of fascism, and away from our traditions and self-governance. But he did come before Wilson and pave the way for a more fluid view of how our government was structured and intended to operate, a progressive view of it. Roosevelt's most obvious failing and tilt toward fascism came in the form of his ready and regular criticism that the courts were, quote, lagging behind the times. That the law had to change in order to allow the government to take care of the people, rather than continuing the strong recognition of individual rights instilled in our system that allows us to take care of ourselves. Though very different personalities, and one more likable than the other, Wilson and Teddy Roosevelt shared a progressive view for America's future that went right along with the nation's fawning over Mussolini as he rose to prominence. That anyone doubt Teddy Roosevelt was on the same progressive path, you need only acknowledge that his presidential nomination was seconded by none other than Jane Addams, a progressive social activist whose views on the individual are in line with other progressives, as she explained. We must demand that the individual shall be willing to lose the sense of personal achievement and shall be content to realize his activity only in connection to the activity of the many. And no review of which political party has more fascist tendencies can continue without discussion of FDR. President Franklin Delano Roosevelt reshaped America. He was a progressive, and that is what progressives do. They enact extreme changes to the system, to the foundation. It is in FDR that we see the first successful push to view the federal government as a limited but necessary structure, and instead to see our leader, the president, as the solution to all of our problems. The masses, the very masses the likes of Mussolini and Wilson knew could be controlled to forward their causes, now looked to a single man as the solution, to government as the solution. Where Wilson worshipped the state, or at least thought others ought to, from 1933 to 1945, many of our fellow citizens worshipped FDR. Much like Mussolini's fascism and even Hitler's Nazism, the policies of FDR were most notable for the attempt to find some middle between socialism and capitalism. The problem with all of these regimes, in that respect, is that none of them had a solid or clear philosophy, and often it resulted in chaotic, untenable policy shifts. Far from being some ingenious new system, for example, FDR's New Deal, the pinnacle of his presidency for many, was, as described by Raymond Moley, an actual advisor to FDR during enactment of the New Deal, this way. To look upon these programs as the result of a unified plan was to believe that the accumulation of stuffed snakes, baseball pictures, school flags, old tennis shoes, carpenter's tools, geometry books, and chemistry sets in a boy's bedroom could have been put there by an interior decorator. 
You see, none of these leaders were actually interested in development of a new political or economic theory. What they wanted was more power, and for that power to reside in them. It cannot be overlooked that FDR's tenure and that of Mussolini overlap, and that the same progressive movement was the underpinning of the rise to power of both men. The New Deal was a remaking of America, and more in the image of Mussolini's Italy than in the image our founders envisioned. What is perhaps the greatest irony is that at the time of the New Deal, fascism was not a dirty word, and Roosevelt's association with it commonly accepted and celebrated. Indeed, it was Eleanor Roosevelt who spoke of America's need for, quote, a benevolent dictator. These progressives were not fighting for more individual freedom, but less of it, for our own good. Just as Mussolini's own philosophies were often contradictory at best, so too are modern progressives, for it is not the policy they are after, but the control to enact it, after which, given, it becomes nearly impossible to reclaim for the people. The progressive movement is an international movement. It has expressed itself in different ways in different nations, but it is not unique to the United States or to Italy, just as fascism is not solely an Italian or Mussolini phenomenon. The very policies supported by Mussolini in Italy were supported in developed countries around the world and continue to exist as the same progressive movement started all those years ago. Little has changed in the modern era, as the call for progress by progressives seeks to move us all toward more government control. Modern democratic leaders are continuing this push. And the second half of the 20th century did not bring with it any cessation of our move that direction. From Kennedy to Johnson and Obama to Biden, presidents elected under the Democratic Party moniker in the second half of the 20th century and into today have continued a progressive push for more government control. And today's leaders are no longer hiding their totalitarian tendencies without apologies for the fact that the very element of totalitarianism is fascist at its core. From its beginnings, fascism used the energy and dissatisfaction of youth to gather support. In the modern era, few things, prior to today's progressive agenda, so clearly used the natural counterculture tendencies of the young than the progressive push in 1960s America. That does not mean all young people, or even most of them, are progressive. But those who are, are easy to work into a frenzy to gain attention for the movement of the day. With the 1960s came the real rise of identity politics, an incredible tool to control the masses. Pit one group against the other, all while preaching more government intervention as the solution. Sell a myth to motivate the masses, and then use the cries of the masses to implement changes based on that myth. Cries against oppression end up simply demanding another, more dangerous type of oppression. Real oppression, not mythical oppression. With Lyndon Johnson's Great Society, Wilson's dream of state worship was nearly realized. Where FDR's New Deal inserted government into our economic activities, Johnson inserted government into our personal lives. Counter to the cries of fascism, when conservatives support bans or limits on abortion or they seek harsher criminal laws and penalties, it is the progression of the left that truly threatens individual liberty. And it does so by replacing religion with worship of the state. And it was Kennedy's celebrity appeal that opened and kept open the door for Americans once again to idolize a president as they had idolized FDR and as Italians had idolized Mussolini. Where the person taking control of you is attractive and charismatic, it seems less threatening. Just as Ted Bundy lured his murder victims to him by appearing to be a very handsome man and a lot of fun to be around, and thus less scary, many successful progressive leaders do the same as they march their admirers into totalitarianism, and by extension closer and closer to the very fascism they claim to abhor, 
or at least claim to abhor now. President Johnson explained his great society, and boy did it sound grand. A kind of utopia. A calling for support for it, because who could be opposed? In 1964, he described his program this way. The great society rests on abundance and liberty for all. It demands an end to poverty and racial injustice, to which we are totally committed in our time. But that is just the beginning. The great society is a place where every child can find knowledge to enrich his mind and to enlarge his talents. It is a place where leisure is a welcome chance to build and reflect, not feared cause of boredom and restlessness. It is a place where the city of man serves not only the needs of the body and the demands of commerce, but the desire for beauty and the hunger for community. Sounds too good to be true. That's because it is. It is a myth, and it's used only to stir the masses to support a larger role for government. Equity and unity over liberty and individualism is the hallmark of fascism. It is also the hallmark of the Great Society, Obamacare, and of nearly every agenda item of the Biden administration, the Speaker of the House, and the Senate Majority Leader. They no longer hide those motives. They are, more as Wilson was, unashamed to take positions directly counter to the American experiment and to the text of the very document they have all sworn to uphold and defend. From Hillary Clinton's utopia view of the village, rather than parents raising children, to Obama's government takeover of your very ability to make your own health care decisions, today's Democratic Party, and most notably its progressive wing, which is including more and more of it, have not backed off their fascist tendencies. They have heightened them. They have fully embraced Mussolini's theory and goal. Everything in the state, nothing outside the state. There is no problem the government can't and shouldn't solve for you. There is no aspect of life for which a government program should not exist. There is no room for individual choice and individual outcome. President Biden's currently pending budget reconciliation legislation is a prime example of just the type of programs Benito Mussolini would have endorsed for it places everything in the state. No doubt Mussolini was a violent, brutal, and cruel dictator, and our leaders appear to be much, much nicer. They are Ted Bundy. From child care to health care, from what industries can produce to what we can buy, to financial monitoring and higher taxation, from detailed labor laws and controls to more public benefits upon which citizens may be forced to rely, there is nothing in the Biden agenda that seeks to improve our opportunities. Instead, the focus is on limiting and controlling those opportunities in an attempt to make us all dependent upon this hopefully benevolent totalitarian regime to solve all of our problems, for we surely cannot be trusted or free to solve them ourselves. It is here that we also see another similarity with fascism from the left, and that is that there is no consistent substantive philosophy at play, but rather an ends justifies the means. The government must have this control, and it must take it however it can without regard to legal procedures or traditions, and without regard to the very inalienable and natural rights on which our framers so ingeniously created this amazing American system. As explained again by Jonah Goldberg in his book, Liberal Fascism, American liberalism is a totalitarian political religion, but not necessarily an Orwellian one. It is nice, not brutal, nannying, not bullying, but it is definitely totalitarian or holistic, if you prefer. And that liberalism today sees no realm in human life that is beyond political significance, from what you eat to what you smoke to what you say. Sex is political, food is political, sports, entertainment, your inner motives, and your outer appearances all have political salience for liberal fascists. Why is it then that the left so readily and regularly attempts to paint those on the right as fascists when they once openly embraced and celebrated the fascist advancement in Italy? In part, this is a result of an erroneous linking of fascism and Nazism. 
both led by evil men and having distinct similarities, any discussion about what is and is not fascist cannot be tied to the physical brutality of the regimes, but must consider what the goals of each movement were for the government. In each instance, and in the progressive movement in the United States, as in other parts of the world today, the goal for all of these movements, as they are not fine-tuned philosophies the way communism and socialism arguably are, is control. Dictatorship. Centralization of control in one government or one person. That in some of the more fascist regimes the dictator is more benevolent does not lessen the fact that it is a dictatorship, and that it is in direct conflict with our own governing documents and founding principles. Those very traditions, those very principles, that are sought to be conserved by those who consider ourselves conservatives and on the right. As always, thank you for listening. Unlike those on the other side of the political spectrum, I do not label and affix names to those with whom I disagree. It is my hope that this episode provides the beginnings of a more thorough discussion of why fascism is a threat even today, and even here, and why it is not the right that poses this threat. This episode merely scratches the surface of the creation of Mussolini's fascism and its relationship to historical and present-day progressivism. Needless to say, any honest consideration of the risks posed by greater government control must consider the fascist tendencies whenever government is placed above the individual. As Alexis de Tocqueville noted, the health of a democratic society may be measured by the quality of functions performed by private citizens. For it is the private individual, not the community or the collective or the government, whose free actions must be permitted if democracy is to survive. Next week, I will discuss how we, the masses, are being led not only by our government down a mythical path to utopia, but also how we are being controlled and persuaded by those purporting to make our lives easier and more entertaining. From the entertainment industry to big tech, recent revelations expose the true depth of deception and propaganda being aimed at us in order to spark our energies in support of a certain agenda. Indeed, the current situation is interestingly similar to so many past societal movements that all appear to have led not to resolution of the grievance, but to more control by someone or something other than us. Until next time, stay free, be brave, search for truth, defend our Constitution, and God bless America. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please consider leaving a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. And don't forget to share the podcast with others who may enjoy and need to hear it. If you wish to help this podcast continue, you can contribute to support it by going to anchor.fm backslash solace-veritas and clicking the support button. The Defending American Exceptionalism podcast is written and produced by Solus Veritas. Original music by Canticum Octar. Special thanks to Morales Susceptor. Copyright 2021.